so much for the opportunity to learn from your word. We thank you so much for the opportunity to grow in your grace, to understand better of who you are and what you made us to be and how we can, we can know you and, and to, to understand the grace we have in Christ better. And Lord, we thank you for the season that we're moving into. Um, and I just pray, Lord God, that you would magnify yourself a little bit more um, as we focus in on you during this uh, Christmas season. And I pray, Lord God, that there would be many in Crawfordsville and Southern Montgomery County, Lord, that, that their, their eyes, their minds are turned to you in a different way this season that causes them to, to wonder what is this gift of Christmas that they are missing. Pray, Lord, that you would put us as your people into the right place to, to be able to share the hope that we have in Christ. I just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's, um, we're opening the Christmas season, and of course we go into the Old Testament book of Daniel. Makes sense, right? Well, it's where the Lord has led us and at this time. And, and, but I think that you'll also find that Christ is all over the book of Daniel. And God's kingdom and God's king is all over the book of Daniel. And that is what the Christmas season is about for sure. As we move into the book of Daniel... And over these, these weeks as I've uh, been studying and praying through this, I've been looking for what is it that God wants us to gain from the book of Daniel as the body at harvest. And as a whole, what we're gaining from the book of Daniel, I hope, is to recognize the supreme rule of God in an ungodly world. That's what we're tiding, titling our study in the book of Daniel, the supreme rule of God in an ungodly world. In the book of Daniel, we read about God's people who have been deported to a foreign land. The book of Daniel is not about Daniel any more than the book of Isaiah is about Isaiah or that the book of Jeremiah is about Jeremiah. The book of Daniel is about God as he is at work for and through his people in exile in Babylon. The book of Daniel teaches us that the follower of Christ is able to shine for him amidst the deepest darkness. Daniel was taken into the belly of the beast of Babylon, the empire that was ruling the known world at that time. He was expected to be completely impressed and intimidated by what he saw there. Instead, we see a man who was fully submitted to God and spoke light into the darkness of king's courts. What we see through Daniel's visions is how God quietly rules over the kingdoms of man. We see how God moved entire empires like chess pieces in carrying out his will with concerning his special people. Despite how big the throne might be that is occupied by any earthly ruler, we see again and again in Daniel that there is one biggest throne. And that ruler never moves. We also see from the experiences of Daniel and his three friends how there is a throne in our hearts. And on several occasions... We will be spectators to how their loyalty to the greatest king affects their choices. 
The book of Daniel is divided up into two distinct sections. The first section is chapters 1 through 6, and it's made up of stories of Daniel and his three friends as court officials and as a national ruler. These chapters are written in Aramaic, and they're intended to be a testimony to the Gentile nations of the, of the rule of God over them. In the second section, chapters 7 through 12, it's made up of visions and images representing coming centuries of nations and rulers and God's plan for the world. This section is written in Hebrew, and it's intended to be to encourage the Hebrew people. They needed to be reminded about the rule of our eternal God over the rise and fall of the nations of men. They and we need to be encouraged that those who trust and obey God will one day see him rule for eternity. Before we move into Daniel chapter 1, I think it's important for us to understand why Daniel and others are in exile. Around 1300 B.C., or, or so, 700 years or so, years before Babylon comes and deports Daniel from his homeland, the children of Israel are about to move into the promised land that had been promised to the descendants of Abraham. Moses predicted the sad events that would take place eventually. He writes in Deuteronomy 4, 25 through 31 of what he said to the children of Israel. He says, when, you're fa when you father children and children's children, and he's speaking for, well, he says, we'll go into it. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, and as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you that you will soon utterly perish from the land and that you are, that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And this is what we see happen to ten tribes of the Hebrew people. And he goes on to say, And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you'll be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. This was, was predicted of what would happen to Daniel and the rest of the, the nation of Judah because of their idolatry. Around 700 B.C., some 100 years prior to Daniel's being deported to Babylon, Hezekiah, King Hezekiah had acted foolishly, and Isaiah brings him this word from the Lord. Isaiah says in 39, 5-7 of Isaiah, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house... And that which your fathers have stored up to this, till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So we step forward to 605 B.C., 
And we read in Daniel 1, and we title this, Into the Belly of Babylon. Daniel 1 jumps right into the biography of Daniel and his friends. The chapter also serves to introduce the book of Daniel as a whole, setting the stage of the book. But we're going to read chapter 1 together, and I'm going to pause to just kind of explain some statements or some background as we move through it here. But as we see in the first two verses of Daniel chapter 1, a description here of the first deportation of the people of Judah after being taken over by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. It reads, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. The kingdom of Israel was divided shortly after Solomon's reign. Judah, with Jerusalem and the temple, was the last group of God's people in the promised land after the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, of the, these ten tribes, Judah being with Benjamin, making up the, the nation of Judah, or the kingdom of Judah. The kingdom of Israel had already been decimated and destroyed and dispersed by the Assyrians. So Judah with Jerusalem and the temple was the last group of God's people here in the promised land. For centuries they had not kept their promises to God, although they had good leaders at times, but they were few and far between. And so he removed them from the promised land as he had promised that he would do, as we had read. This deportation in 605 was the first of three. You can read in 2 Kings 24 through 25 if you're interested. You can read about the foolish behavior of King Zedekiah after this deportation. He was ruling in Judah in 586, some just 20 years later. And the final result was that the city of Jerusalem and the temple were finally destroyed by Babylon in 586. It was a common practice, though. We read here in these first two verses. It was a common practice to take the vessels or, or the, the um, artifacts, the, the valuables of the God of a conquered nation. They would be placed in the temple of the God of the conquering nation, and the idea was that the God of the conquering nation was mightier thought to be than the God of the nation conquered. Make no mistake, the Babylonians believed that they were religiously superior as well as culturally. At some point, we will look more closely at the grandeur and the might of the city of Babylon. But for now, know that it was the capital of the Babylonian empire. You can see on the map here, being uh, the green being representing all of the Babylonian empire. Uh, the city of Babylon was unmatched and the Babylonian empire was unmatched in its ominous rule over the known world and in its cultural achievements. You can see here that the Babylonian empire even stretched down into Egypt having conquered the Egyptians. This would be the Red Sea here, the nation of Israel being over here next to the Mediterranean Sea. And Babylon 
being over here in what is present-day Iraq. And the deportation, this first deportation of, of the, we'll read about it being parts of the royal family as well as Jehoiakim would have been these, this hundreds of miles trek into the belly of the empire of Babylon. We don't have time to go into the sad last days of the kings of Judah, but they were unfortunate. If you're interested, Leviticus 26 hundreds of years prior, foretells in detail how God would continue in sieges, the sieges of Jerusalem, if they would not turn from their sin. Daniel 1 opens with the beginning of the 70-year exile of the people of Judah. And we see in verses 3 through 7 that they began a training for service of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. It reads, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people from Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. I would not have fit this description. Maybe a few of us would, but I'm not one of them. It says, and he was to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans, we'll see them referred to uh, several times in the book of Daniel. They represent the ruling tribe of the Babylonian empire. Um, and sometimes used synonymous with Babylonians themselves. So going on in Daniel 1, it says, The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to be stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. There was a purpose to these three years for the brightest and the handsomest. The purpose was to educate and enculturate these young men into worthy court officials and representatives of Babylon. Now, Babylon didn't rule as we might think of a nation that rules with an iron fist like what you might know of Rome in the time of Jesus ruled. Babylon desired to rule culturally in the nations that it took over, and men like these would have been considered to be sent back to the nations that they came from as emissaries from the Babylonian government, and the nations that they came from would say, well, look at how educated they are. Look at all that they know. Look at, look at what they've gained, and they could boast of all the wonders of Babylon, and they desired to win the hearts of the people in this way. So they would be trained to, to be maybe court officials there in Babylon, or either be emissaries or, or representatives back to the nations that they came from. This involved education in the language, the sciences, the, the magic arts, such as dream interpretation. The Babylonians had, had 
scores of, of ancient books on dream interpretation and things like this that, would, that, that they made use of. Even their names were changed in order to reflect the change that the king hoped to accomplish in them. One's name was very significant in the Hebrew and Babylonian culture. You can tell by their meanings. Daniel's name originally meant God is my judge. It was changed to Belteshazzar, which means, oh lady, protect the king. Lady in this sense, meaning the wife of the Babylonian god Bel. Hananiah meant Yahweh. You can hear that in Hananiah. Yahweh is gracious. His name was changed to Shadrach, meaning command of Aku, who would be the, the moon god of Babylon. Mishael, whose name is, was who is what God is, was changed to Meshach, or who is like Aku, this same moon god of Babylon. Azariah, whose, whose name meant Yahweh, is a helper. His name was changed to Abednego, meaning servant of the shining one, another god of the Babylonian people. The ESV study Bible notes states this. It says, Nebuchadnezzar sought to assimilate the exiles into Babylonian culture by obliterating their religious and cultural identity and creating dependence upon the royal court. But more than anything pointed out here by Daniel in verse 5 is the food, right? They were to eat the delicacies of the table of the king himself. I doubt anyone in the Babylonian empire would have been eating better than they would be. Before we move into the issue of this food and the resolve of these faithful four, I want to mention a couple things. It's likely that Daniel and his friends would have been 14 to 18 years old. I think that's important to consider, especially with the low expectations that we put on teenagers today. But I hope this fact also makes it, it an interesting fact for some of our teenagers here. That these, this was considered, I guess, the prime of life, but it was also a formative time for these young men. A second mention that I would like to make just to highlight the severity of their life change is that it was likely that they would have been made into eunuchs. Some of you kids can ask your parents what that means when you get home. But this was a common practice of this time. The official that they appeal to is called the chief of eunuchs. Remember that Isaiah prophesied to Hezekiah, some among his own sons should be taken away and shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The strain and pressure put on these young men would have been extremely intense. The opportunity to, to grieve the loss of their homeland and their future that they knew it would have been massive and would have been an intense temptation to, to derail their faith. So this moves us into verses 18 through 16, where it says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned you food and your drink, 
For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. And the other three were in agreement with this. We'll look more closely at what must have been, had been about this food that caused these young men to be led so. But right now, let's just observe the situation. The king, the, the chief of the eunuchs, hears Daniel's request. He has compassion and favor for Daniel, but he doesn't necessarily just grant him his request. Okay? Um, and we, we read this further. In verses 11 through 13, it says, Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And Daniel says this, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. Here we see that Daniel tries a different tactic with the steward. Notice this is different. Uh, this is a, uh, the person that the chief of the eunuchs had, had placed over, but he was under this chief. So here he simply is asking that he test them to see if going without the king's delicacies will harm them in any way. It may be that the chief of the eunuchs gave the steward some sort of leeway, and this was the favor that he had toward Daniel. It may be that the steward simply liked the idea of getting to eat the delicacies of four people over these ten days. Regardless of the reason, we read then, so he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were no better in appearance that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. Some of you ladies are thinking, oh no, it didn't work. They're supposed to look better. They wanted them to get fatter. Okay, it's a different culture. So. so the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables, meaning for the remainder of the three years, they would continue to eat vegetables and would not be drinking the wine. The four young men passed the test agreed upon by Daniel and their supervisor. The steward chose to continue to withhold the fine food and the wine for the rest of their time and training. And if it is the case that he was eating it, he must have gone through what was the Babylonian version of a quadruple bypass surgery after the end of these three years, I would suppose. But. So this moves us into Daniel 7, the verses 17 through 21 that the chapter ends with, as for, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of the king of Cyrus, of King Cyrus. King Cyrus was not Babylonian. King Cyrus was Medo-Persian. This statement is made, and it's significant, and it's pointing out the fact that Daniel outlasts 
the Babylonians. By the time the Medo Persians come and take away the empire from the Babylonians, Daniel is still there. And Daniel continues his ministry as a court official into the Medo Persian empire further. Have you ever noticed uh, the different names that we come up with to describe supreme rulers? His eminence, her highness, the prime minister, the grand chancellor, the commander and chief, the grand poobah. That one's from the Flintstones Lodge, the one that Fred and Barney belong to. There's a real significance to Jesus' name of King of all kings and Lord of all lords. God is supreme to all those other supposed supreme rulers. Daniel 1, for me, for Harvest, Daniel 1 is that God is always doing his supreme work and works through his holy people. God is always doing his supreme work and works through his holy people. By holy, I mean set apart for him. And I just want to take this opportunity as I try to, as much as I can, to explain what I mean by that. We certainly don't start out holy in our lives. We start out sinfully separated from God. It's only because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we can have a relationship with our Creator. When a person receives the payment of Jesus Christ for their sins, they are adopted as his child. The Holy Spirit begins to indwell them, and he begins to push them to become more like Christ. This becoming more like Christ involves being convicted and set apart to serve the Lord. Here in Daniel, prior to the coming of Christ, we're going to see how God's conviction for holiness leads these four young men. I think that we're going to find Daniel to be very applicable also to our lives today. As followers of Christ in America, we're not in a situation where we've been deported to a different culture that's different than our own. But we find our culture changing dramatically in the very land that we live in. As followers of Christ, we can be encouraged by God's constant reign over everything. And we must look to our, for our constant opportunity to glorify God within the culture that we live. And this brings us to the eternal principles from Daniel chapter 1. These principles serve us in two ways this morning. First, these principles allow us to learn from Daniel chapter 1, but also, as I mentioned, Daniel 1 is introductory to the book of Daniel. So these eternal principles here also introduce the themes that we're going to find as we move through the book of Daniel. The first of these principles that we see in Daniel is God's constant reign over all. Notice what we read in verse 2 here. It says, uh, starting verse 1, In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. But then it says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. We learn from Daniel 1 that God handed over the king of Judah along with Daniel and his three friends along with some of his own vessels from his own temple. 
We see also in verse 9 why it was that Daniel was not rebuffed by the chief of eunuchs. It says that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. There was a certain favor shown to Daniel by this official. It wasn't for, from Daniel's charm or his good looks. The clear point is made that God gave Daniel this favor. A third time we read that God gave what was needed in order to accomplish his supreme purpose. We see this in verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, when we're studying a passage of Scripture, a chapter like this maybe, we're looking for what's the theme here? What's being trying to communicate? And one of the things that points us to that is repeated terms. And here in Daniel chapter 1, the fact that he says three times in these necessary moments, God gave, is significant. And it's directing us to the idea that this is a major idea that Daniel is seeking to get across. The skills of these three uh, set them apart as, as a part of God's sovereign plan. His plan was to have his people in the highest human court of that time. God used the testimony of these faithful four to amaze and humble, prideful kings. God would use Daniel's lips to deliver his message to the rulers of Babylon and Medo-Persia. As a pastor, I'm seeking to accomplish what God wants to do for his kingdom. But I believe that these things are going to happen more so through the body of Christ than through me. If I'm wanting to see one of you be involved with something, you'll, you might hear me ask, is this something that's on your heart? Or would you pray about this, that if the Lord wants you involved with it? The reason for this is because I believe God is at work. And he's at work in and through his people. I want to see God do something. Not someone who's worried about disappointing me. And I believe that he's working on the hearts of the people that he desires to do those things. I believe that God works through his word. And that's why it's a major part of harvest. I believe that we should be prayerfully dependent on him to see him work. I believe that God first wants to work in our personal lives. Making application of the things that we learn. Moving from just head knowledge to, to heart surrender. You know, with all that you might see change around you in our culture today, no matter what looms over us, like fiscal cliffs and things like that, know that God has never stopped doing his work, no matter the circumstances. He is always giving what is needed to accomplish his plan. The question is, is that what we ultimately want to see? Galileo once said of the sun, he said, the sun, with all of those planets revolving around it and dependent upon it, can still ripen a bunch of grapes as if it had nothing else in the universe to do. Even more so, God's omnipotent power makes it so that he is able to work in all circumstances for his glory, and his power does not diminish no matter how many kings he's working like puppets. We see 
First, that God's constantly reigning over all, his constant reign over all. The second principle from this passage is that our constant opportunity to glorify God. We move into the faithful four's decision not to defile themselves with the king's food. If you recall, it says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Verse 11 picks up, Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel and his friends, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. The first sub-idea under here, and you see it in your notes, under this principle of our constant opportunity to glorify God is the fact that the four were submitted to the ruler. We see throughout this passage that these four young men were obedient and respectful to those who are in authority. Even in the way that they resolved not to defile themselves. They weren't mounting a protest or openly defiant. We don't know what Daniel's response would have been if the steward had said no, uh uh-uh. But Proverbs 16.7 tells us that when a man's way pleases the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. A commentator writes about this and other stories that we find in the book of Daniel about him and his three friends. He says, these stories exemplify faithful living in exile and provide models of how God's people should live as strangers and exiles in the world that is not their home. They show Daniel and his friends serving their pagan masters loyally, yet without compromise, without compromising their greater loyalty to God. We aren't going to spend much idea on this idea of their submission here, but I introduce it here because, as I said, this is a theme that runs throughout the book of Daniel that we'll see. Well, let me say this in application. I expect that we will be seeking wisdom from God in a special way in these coming years to know how we should live under our rapidly changing government. I believe this is part of why God has led us as a body to the book of Daniel. And so these moments from Daniel's experience will be very helpful for us. Second idea under this principle is that the four were resolved to be holy. So on to the topic of this food that they were resolving themselves not to eat. I want to clarify something. It is not clear that this was a cut and dried issue as far as a hard fast rule that the four were seeking to follow. Um, it's, It's not clear that the food was simply unclean due to the Mosaic law. The objectionable menu that Daniel um, seeks to not follow, it includes both the food from the king's table, the, the meat, as well as the wine. And wine is never outlawed in the Mosaic law. So, so it, it somehow goes beyond and between um, this idea of it being simply objectionable according to the Mosaic law. I don't think that the food was simply ceremonially unclean because of having been offered to idols 
in Babylon as the vegetables would have been offered to idols just as much as meat that would have been brought to them. So it's not clear why they chose to resolve not to eat from the king's table. We do know that Daniel and his friends decided to draw a personal line in the sand. And I think that their practice is in later chapters would point to the fact that they likely prayed together about this. What we do know about this line in the sand is that it was a private issue. It was between them and their supervisor over the four of them. This was not something that they paraded about as being their pious stance against the empire. We also know that it was a sacrifice on their part. They asked no one else to sacrifice. They were making the sacrifice. They didn't choose to resist their studies or slack off in their performance as students. They, they chose to resist the delicacies of the king's table, likely the finest food in the known world. I believe that what Daniel and his friends chose was not to allow themselves to be seduced by the culture. Remember, the king's goal was to win them over. We know that this was a goal of the king of Babylon, and we're talking about the delicious pleasures that were freely offered to them for the taking. Like these faithful four, we're called to treasure Christ more than the seductive pleasures of this world. Treasuring his relationship with God caused Moses to identify with his Hebrew brothers. In Hebrews 11, 24 through 26, we read that by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of the Pharaoh's daughter, choosing to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Treasuring his relationship with God caused David to resolve to be holy as he writes in Psalm 101, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. There are a lot of New Testament teachings on what should be our approach to our fallen culture. We're given clear commands regarding things like marriage and intimacy, lust and love, stealing and honesty. But there are many decisions that require for us to walk in dependence on the Holy Spirit and to know what to do. Jesus shares in his prayer for us to the Father what it looks like to live in this world but yet not to be of this world. To have Christ is our greatest treasure. He says in his prayer in John 17, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world, speaking of himself. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We could certainly have a whole message about these verses, but the idea to take from this passage is that the challenge that Daniel and his friends faced is our challenge too. Being in the world, but not of it. The tools that we have been given are God's word, Christ is our shepherd, and each other. 
Socrates once asked, how can you call a man free when his pleasures rule over him? How can you call a man free when his pleasures rule over him? And I believe that this is what Daniel and his friends were making a stand against in their personal life. There are two extreme approaches to the world and its culture around us that we can take as a church. The extreme responses would be total assimilation and total rejection. Daniel knew where God was leading him to draw the line so as to not become defiled. We must each prayerfully know where to draw this line as well. What about you? Where have you drawn the line for yourself and for your family in what you're going to watch on TV? Parents, are you prayerfully approaching your kids' education, engaged with what they're being taught? Where have you drawn the line for yourself or for your family in the friends that you're going to hang out with and the effect that you allow it to have on you? Are you aware that our society is vigilant in its attempt to get pornography before our eyes and especially before the eyes of our young people? Parents, have you helped your child to navigate through their new gizmo so that they're not going to be exposed to this stuff? Where have you drawn the line for yourself or for your family in where you're going to go for entertainment? Uh, to the singles, to the single people, have you prayerfully decided now what godly qualities you're looking for in a potential mate? Where have you drawn the line for yourself or for your family in what you're going to talk about? The list of questions can go on, but the idea is this. In order to be in this world but not of it, we must resolve like Daniel not to be defiled. Ours is the same challenge. Are you prayerfully approaching the, the seduction of our culture and with accountability? If not, you are not avoiding defilement as Daniel did. So the last idea here is that the four were prepared to be used. We read that as for these youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And verse 21 closes, as we mentioned, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. We, see, we will see this principle again through the book of Daniel. We'll witness these young men make choices to preserve the treasure of their relationship with God. We'll witness God's blessing as a result of their treasuring Him above other things. We will also see the stakes grow much higher. Here, Daniel and his friends asked two officials to go out on a limb for them to help them to not be defiled. In the next chapter, the four of them are going to face a death sentence. And we're going, to deal, we're going to be looking at how do they deal with that. Then soon after that, we'll see Daniel's three friends come against a choice that they're going to have to make. Now it's a, there's a death sentence involved, but the choice is theirs. Are they going to continue to treasure their relationship with God more than the threat and thereby 
be threatened with death in a fiery furnace. Then, then on from that, we're going to see that famous lion's den that Daniel is threatened with. And the choice there, again, is for him to make. Here, the threat of death, but now the choice is there. Is he going to choose to follow his Lord and thereby be thrown into this lion's den? You see, their resolve not to be defiled prepared them for tougher predicaments. Brian Chappelle writes, if we do not practice holiness today, it will not protect us in the future. This principle of our choices needing to prepare us for greater trials, it's common in Scripture. Um, the first place that I saw this pop up in a real distinct way was in David's conversation with Saul prior to fighting Goliath and Saul doubting him and David describes the Lord delivered me from a lion the Lord delivered me from a bear and the Lord who delivered me from the lion and from the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine and I, I like to call this principle um, the principle of the campfire and if, if you bear with me here I'm going to close with just this explanation here Oh, you love that sound, don't you? You know, I'm going to see how... I haven't practiced this, so we'll see how this goes. You know, wood is kind of interesting. You can take... You know, this is, this is a piece of oak hardwood flooring. Dry, ready to go, you know. But that's not the fire alarm, don't worry. <laughs> so why won't it burn? Well, any of you that have wood-burning stoves or building campfires, you know that you have to start with something that's going to catch fire really easily. Don't worry, I'm not going <laughs> to light this stuff up. You know, you have to start with, with paper or something like it, maybe some cardboard. And the idea is you're going to lay on to that something that's going to burn even easier. Or, or harder, it's harder to burn than the paper, but it's more easily than the piece of wood that I just tried to light with the lighter there. And the idea after that is, is, is with that smaller pieces of wood burning, you're going to start to add some kindling. And, and with that burning, you can move up into larger pieces of kindling and, and then you know, bigger pieces of wood. And, and then eventually you can get to where you're putting logs onto this fire, right? Well, the principle of the campfire works this way. If you don't get the paper started, your, your fire's lost. You'll never be prepared for the big logs if you don't deal rightly with the little things. And that's the principle of the campfire. That's how Daniel and his friends prepared themselves for the greater trials that were coming. And you see that again and again in biographies that you, that you read of in the scriptures. And young people, this is so important for you. You know, little piddly things like, oh, am I going to obey my parents on this? Or do I, do I really need to you know, just kind of stop hanging out with this friend. It, 
yeah, it's just, you know, it's only affecting me a little bit. Those small things are what prepare you for the bigger trials and the bigger temptations of life. And that's what we're going to see happen in Daniel's life as well. They were prepared by their resolving not to be defiled. They were prepared for greater trials and greater temptation. I'm going to ask John and Emmy to come on up and I'll close us in prayer and then they'll lead us in a song. Father, I thank you for leading us into Daniel in these days. And Lord, I, I look expectantly to the things that you have to teach us from this. Lord, I pray for each one of us as we face small temptations and trials today that we'll take these things seriously. And we'll recognize that choosing not, choosing to resist, choosing not to be defiled in these smaller things, prepare us for being used by you, prepare us for dealing with the greater temptations that we're going to face. Lord, I just thank you so much for your word, and I thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit being involved with us. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.